Imagine a photo lineup. You're in the lineup. You have to pick yourself out from the lineup. All the other people in the lineup are... They look similar to you in various ways. Like They're the same age as you, the same height, the same skin color, etc. Maybe they got the same hair color, the same eye color. You could pick yourself out. No problem. What if it was a photo lineup? Same, same group of people. You're included, and you got to pick yourself out of this photo lineup. What if it's just images of your shoulder blades? What if it's an image of your thigh? <laughs> Imagine a spectrum. On the left, we have aspects of yourself that you could readily pick out. And on the right side, we have things that you, like, fail to pick out. You can't even, you know, it's essentially random as to whether or not you're correct. How many things would go on the left side of that spectrum? How many things do you know about yourself that you can easily pick out? How many things do you not know about yourself? Whatever you think might be the case, the quantity of things on the left side of that spectrum it's not going to be 100%. I don't think it'll be very high at all. Even if you thought it was 70%, there's going to be things that fall other other places on that spectrum. <laughs> your shoulder blade, your thigh, those types of things. Those are going to fall somewhere. Could you pick your knee out on a lineup? Well, a lot of things are going to go on the right side of that spectrum. There's lots of things we don't know about ourselves. I don't really know what my back looks like. I don't even really know what my face looks like from certain angles. Angles at which other people probably frequently see me. But you know what? Even your face, you learned that. We aren't even born with that knowledge. If there were such a person who never saw their own reflection... I don't think such a person exists because even in a traditional society, if we went and we found some hunter-gatherers, probably they see their reflections in pools of water. But if there were such a person who never saw their own reflection, they wouldn't be able to pick themselves out of a lineup. They don't know what they look like. How about this? Your internal organs. None of us could pick our, our own internal organs out. But those are more us than our skin, our face, in some sense. Our brain, that's everything. We couldn't pick our brain out. I don't know what my brain looks like relative to another brain. We could probably mix our brains up with other species. Cognitive biases, that's one of the most interesting examples of this phenomenon of us being very ignorant of our of our own of our own minds even never mind our bodies i got a list of cognitive biases here these are on my flashcards An earlier podcast i talked about how i'd like to reduce all of knowledge to flashcards all right dunning kruger that one's kind of popular wayne was texting me about that recently wayne if you're listening Dunning-Kruger, 
the gist of this is that the less you know about something, the more confident you are in your beliefs about it. We overestimate our expertise on something. Kind of like I learned like a few facts about cognitive biases. <laughs> now, I, now here I am pretending to teach you about them. The font effect. Clearer fonts are more believed. Obviously no good reason for that. Um, hyperbolic discounting. I don't like the name of that one because it, it doesn't intuitively fit with me. But we all know this. We choose less now rather than more later. It's the Oreo experiment. No, the marshmallow experiment. Remember that one? That's the one. I read an Atlantic article kind of suggesting that they went back and looked at that and it didn't didn't really pan out the way we've all understood it. But the, the marshmallow experiment was like, you know, you gave a kid an option. You could eat this marshmallow now or you could wait 15 minutes and we'll give you two marshmallows. And some kids ate the marshmallow right off the bat. Other kids waited. And the really the, the point of the, the marshmallow experiment is that they then looked back at that cohort of people that they studied and it turned out like all these life, um, their choice in the marshmallow experiment actually predicted for various life outcomes. Now, I think there's kind of an asterisk next to that now. Um, but anyway, the point is a lot of us do that. We'll, we'll take less now rather than more later. And that's considered a, a cognitive bias. The overconfidence effect. We have an irrational belief in our choice. Even when those choices um, are random, and even when we know they're random. I wonder if sports teams is a good example of this. Maybe not, because it's not really about right or wrong there. It's just about rooting. The positive outcome bias. <laughs> We judge positive outcomes as more likely than they really are. Yes, I do that. The halo effect. We treat people as authoritative and credible based on wealth and attractiveness. Does that remind you of anybody running the country? Well, I don't know about the attractiveness thing. He's rather repulsive, isn't he? Um... Irrational escalation. We we judge an action as less risky if we've already invested in it. This is like, um, you know, you go to war and the war goes badly. And so we figure, well, we better send more troops. So, okay. Well, okay. So those are, this, you know, if, if you keep going down this uh, kind of rabbit hole, you're going to find a million of these. There's this guy, Gerd Gigenrenzer, my old name. He's a skeptic of the cognitive bias interpretation of these various human mm, biases. Gonna be a better way to say that. Imagine a doctor says, you have a diagnosis. That guy with the stethoscope that I was talking about in the last podcast. He shows up. Now, for the treatment, there's two ways that he could approach it. He might tell you that there's a 90% chance that you'll survive this treatment. Do you want to do it? 
Well, your answer might be different if he says, well, there's a 10% chance you're going to die if we attempt that. The cognitive bias research, the researchers interpret those two questions as meaning the same thing. That's a key point to understand. So we're treating those statements as equivalents. If those statements are equivalents, the response of the patient should be identical in each situation. We're talking about a 90% chance of survival and a 10% chance of dying in both cases. But people don't respond the same way to each of those statements. If you say you got a 90% chance of surviving, people are more likely to do it than if you say you got a 10% chance of dying. For the behavioral economists, which is, I guess, the field that does this research, they think that that shows that people have an inherent bias. If you frame a claim in a certain way, people respond differently, even though it's the same information. Well, old Gerd, and I think he's right about this, he points out that those statements do not contain the same information. There's lots of other information embedded in a sentence beyond, like, the math that's being stated. The tone, the word choice. Old Gerd tells us that people are, in fact, intuitive psychologists. It's sort of a virtue for him. It's not a failing. For old Gerd, people are recognizing that the doctor is kind of winking and nodding at them. If the doctor's saying, yeah, we could do that, but, uh, you know, 10% chance of dying, uh, but yeah, we could do it, he doesn't think you should do it. If the doctor's emphasizing the high survival rate, I don't know if 90% is high, but um, if the doctor is um, emphasizing the high survival rate, well, maybe they want you to do it. That's the inference that people intuitively make, according to old Gerd. It really doesn't matter who's right in terms of my overarching point here, which is that we don't understand ourselves. The fact that there's a debate about this in some way reveals that we don't understand our own minds. We're still trying to figure it out. Or nonchalant lived <laughs> circa 2500 BC. Or Nansha. He was the king of Lagash. Lagash was a city-state in ancient Mesopotamia. Ornansha founded a dynasty. It was long-lived and stable. Uh, Ornansha shaved his face and his head. And uh, there's something called the relief of Ornansha. The relief. It's like they took a, a slab of rock and they carved something into it. It shows Ornansha helping build a temple. And it shows him, I think the, I think the image is him... Um, like celebrating the opening of this temple. It's dedicated to Ningirsu. I was learning about ancient Mesopotamia last summer. <laughs> it's the craziest story. 
Amanda Podani. She was the lecturer. She's a, I guess, a professor of ancient Mesopotamian history. She has a teaching company course on Mesopotamia. Oh my God, this is the craziest thing. I put that on. I'm watching. I'm trying to trying to learn about Mesopotamia. In the first lecture, she, you know, like oh, so many of these these people, they tell you a little about themselves. <laughs> she was the fucking bass player for the Bengals. Walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The the bass player for the Bengals. It's a professor of ancient history. Now, there's kind of a catch here. She was in the Bengals, like, before they took off. I can't believe she didn't address this, though. Did she write the song, Walk Like an Egyptian? I don't know. Did she leave the band, and then they wrote the song, and they were influenced by the fact that she was so into ancient history? Is it just a coincidence? Because that'd be fucking weird. Anyway, the bass player for the Bengals taught me all about Ornansha, the king of Lagash, circa 2500 BC. You know, Ornansha was forgotten for 3,000 years. All of these ancient Mesopotamian kings, their kingdoms were forgotten. Until we deciphered cuneiform. We don't know where we've been. Not only do we not have innate knowledge of ourselves. But we don't have innate knowledge of where we came from. We didn't know that the continents moved until like the 1960s. We didn't know that the sun was at the center of the solar system. We didn't know that the Earth revolved around the sun until 1500s. I don't know when we found out that the solar system is not the center of the galaxy. I don't know when we found out that our galaxy is only one of, is it billions of galaxies? I don't know when we figured those things out, but I think it's the 20th century. So we didn't have inherent knowledge of that. Certainly the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years, they say now. The age of the Earth, about 4.5 billion years. We didn't know any of that. Did you know you're a deuterostome? (laughs) There's two categories of animals. There's protostomes and deuterostomes. And... Here's the difference. So, the first cell of a new organism is called a zygote. The sperm and the egg fuse together, you have a zygote. That's the first cell. And then you have a blastula, and then an embryo, then a fetus. Then, you know, maybe there's other stages too, but the point is there's a stage of development called a blastula. You have to know that to understand the difference between a protostome and a deuterostome. The protostomes. These are more evolutionarily primitive, I I guess, um, organisms um, than us, than us deuterostomes. Um, The protostomes, as a blastula, 
there's a, an opening that develops. The very first opening in the blastula. And it's called a blastopore. <laughs> so the blastopore of the blastula is the first opening in the developing organism. In protostomes, that turns into their mouth. So we got our blastopore, an opening in a blastula, a developing organism. And this first opening turns into the mouth over time. Us deuterostomes, <laughs> the very first opening, it doesn't turn into the mouth. It turns into the asshole. So I think we've been talking out of the wrong end. <laughs>